0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, and we are in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus talks about uh, revelation. He talks about Him revealing the Father, and uh, God revealing Himself to us who believe. Revelation is a very important thing for us to understand, because God reveals Himself To us in many different ways. He reveals himself to us in creation. We see the hand of God and we learn about the character and the nature of God by perceiving creation. Creation is an orderly place, a place of deep meaning, and we can apply our minds through observation and through experience and through rational thought and reflection upon creation. We can learn about it and we can come to understand it. We come to understand it in ways that bring benefit to our lives when it comes to the seasons and the planting of crops and numerous other ways that this uh, understanding brings to us good things. We can reflect upon creation because it is orderly and because our minds are made in the image of God and we can rightly uh, think and reflect and learn about creation. We know about God because of the workings of our own minds, because of our ability to reflect and to consider truth and to consider justice and to consider beauty. Though we uh, look for these things and we often don't see them, uh, we can reflect upon them and we know when we don't see them. And we know when we get closer to these understandings and when we get closer to love and to truth. And so we are able to know something about God through these rightly ordered minds or consciousness. We also receive revelation or knowledge of God through the instruction of his prophets. And we know about the Lord through the speaking of the Holy Spirit uh, in the scriptures that the prophets wrote. And uh, a great example of that is the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah, speaking on behalf of the Lord in the time of exile, is preparing the people of exile in Babylon to return to the land of promise, to return to Jerusalem. Zechariah is living in about 500 BC, and so he is at the end of these uh, 75 or 80 years of captivity that the people of Israel spend in Babylon. They're just about to be sent back by the Persians. And when they go back to Jerusalem, their uh, rule is, their instruction is to reestablish true worship in the temple and to reestablish the worship of the Most High God. And so as they're getting ready to leave Babylon and go back, the Lord is telling them uh, that they're going to be this people of of hope, um, that they are going to be um, establishing this right order, and that he is going to do that with them. The Lord is uh, instructing them not only about this return to Israel, but He's instructing them about the coming of the Messiah 500 years later. Uh, He's instructing us and the church now 2,500 years later. And He's preparing us for the second coming of Christ. How can He do all these things at once? How can He instruct us in these many different times and places? Because of the way that Christians understand time. Christians do not understand time the way the pagans do. Pagan writings, if you read the Greeks and the Romans, are very much interested in the idea of fate and destiny. They have this idea of a circular time where somebody is caught in a spiral loop and there's no way for them to get out. They can't get out of this loop of destiny or of fate. And this is the way pagan peoples understand time. They see it as this continuous um, events uh, and nothing changes. We have uh, enlightenment minds and enlightenment ideas, and so we have a concept of time uh, that is uh, constantly moving forward. This kind of rocketing into space ahead of ourselves where everything is going to be new and different and so a progressive understanding has captivated our minds where everything is going to become better where everything is going to become new where we can remake everything and redo everything and we can forget what lies that past and we can be going towards this new um paradise because of these new ideas and you can see where that progressive idea would lead to A Christian understanding of time is very different. It's a spiral. It's moving forward, but it's also repeating. It's not a trap of faith, but it's a repetition of themes that we see over and over again. Things like salvation. Things like God desiring to dwell with us and to be with us. Things like God saving us and bringing us into a closer abiding with Him. And so as we move forward, we're continuing in that theme of God's desire to dwell with us and to sanctify us and to make us whole. And so it's God Himself that Zechariah says that is going to accomplish these things. You see in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, Your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. Uh, So, this is the God who is salvation. This isn't a God who hands out salvation. This is a God who is salvation himself, a king who is salvation himself. And so the idea of a Messiah who is not God is clearly broken down in Zechariah. He is clearly understanding that the Savior, the Messiah that is coming is also God. He is salvation. And when he comes, he doesn't come as a king who's going to lord himself over the people. We read that he is a king who comes humble and mounted on a donkey. That's very significant. And if we um, think about scripture, our mind should immediately be going to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Right, we remember Jesus walking into or riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, this foal of a donkey, which is a very important um, animal for us to contemplate. The kings of Israel historically were riding on mules, and this is what the people would have expected. When they read about a king not riding on a mule, they would be perplexed. Mules are the perfect animals for somebody who wants a good, even pace. Right? A horse is a high-spirited animal who is fast, who is quick, who is tall. And uh, while if you're wanting to get someplace fast and with power and strength, if you're wanting an even ride, the horse is going to be perhaps a little bit too fast and high-spirited. The donkey on the other hand is much like a human person. The donkey has a mind of his own. The donkey uh, thinks about what he's going to do. The donkey doesn't necessarily like to be told what to do. The mule, which is the the, the child of the horse and the donkey, uh, has the benefits of riding a horse, uh, but it has the, the, the steady, even temper. And so we expect a mule, and we don't get a horse for a great general, we get a donkey, the burden animal of a poor man. The donkey would be used as a beast of burden for a poor man sometimes to ride, but more often to carry loads with. The donkey is also interesting for us because uh, the marking that is common on the back of a donkey is that of a white stripe in the shape of a cross. And so we see our Messiah, our Savior God, riding upon this lowly animal of burden with the shape of a cross on his back. And he rides this donkey into Jerusalem and he establishes peace for all nations. And we even read that he does this in order to save those who have gone down into the waterless pit. When we read about the waterless pit, we're thinking about Hades. We're thinking about the place of the dead. Those who have gone on before and who have died. And who have died perhaps not knowing the Messiah. And we read that the Messiah himself will go into the waterless pit and will bring them out. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And we read that the Lord will establish all these things, accomplish all these tasks, not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, but because of His. He says, because of the blood of my covenant. Because it's God's promise. Because of His love and goodness, He accomplishes this task of salvation. And this task of salvation is the one that Jesus accomplishes, and He tells the people in the cities around Galilee that He has accomplished it, and yet they have not rejoiced. Here in chapter 11, Jesus has made His way around the uh, borders of Galilee and he has remarked that the Jews that are there are not receiving his message he says Tyre and Sidon these Gentile cities who were broken down in sin uh, were able to receive his message and to repent but those Jews who had gathered around Galilee would not receive him and Jesus says that um, these things have been hidden from them and what sense does he mean that? That they've been hidden. Because he's accomplished all these things in public, hasn't he? He's spoken and preached in public. He's um, stood out on the lake and he's gone onto the high mount and he's preached in the cities and he's taught in their synagogues. He's performed miracles out in the open. We're in no way given the sense that Jesus is hiding things, that he's whispering secrets in dark alleyways and corners. No, he's done all this thing in public. And yet um, he says that they're hidden. In what sense? The messages of God are hidden by those who are so captivated by sin and by pride and arrogance that they're not able to see the benefits of humility and so they're not able to receive the message of Christ's humility and of the transformation of the power of the Holy Spirit. So much so that they can't even begin to repent. They can't even begin to understand their own sin. And so they stay in their sin. And in some ways, they're blessed because of it. Because you and I know the truth. We know the consequences of sin are death. And we know the call to righteousness. We can't say after today that we're ignorant. We can't say that we don't know, that we didn't understand. And when we say that we know and we understand then all the more we have the burden of proof to show that our lives are transformed and that we have been changed by grace. We're not uh, saved uh, by our good works but we're saved for them. And our lives should mark that change. And so we now are held to the standard of the gospel because we have confessed that we understand it and have come to believe. And when we do understand we understand as little children. Jesus juxtaposes little children from the high and the proud and the arrogant and the way that little children are able to be instructed and the way that they accept instruction and the way that they would accept authority and that we have to accept instruction and authority like little children. If we're going to walk arrogant and proud and upright, then we're not going to receive uh, the correction that we need, the correction of repentance to change and to focus our lives upon the love and care of God and so as little children we come to know the son as little children we come to know the father and as little children his truth is revealed to us when we accept in humility and in loneliness the understanding of who God is and who he's calling us to be we more and more see him and we more and more have him revealed to us and we more and more understand Him and the more that we understand, the more that we're able to live in love and in compassion and charity and gentleness and peace and in light. And that is a beautiful way to live. When we live in arrogance and in pride, when we hold on to anger and resentment, it's hard. It's hard to do the things that we're called to do in life with bitterness and anger. And when we hold on to bitterness and anger and resentment, it makes everything difficult. My job, I love the things I do with the state during the week. I love the tasks that I'm asked to perform. But I have to recognize that it depends uh, lots of the time on who's telling me to do the work. If I have a supervisor that I think likes me, that I think understands me, that allows me some freedom, then the jobs that I'm sent to do are jobs that I can do very easily with joy. But if I have a supervisor who I think doesn't like me and who is not considering my independence or my skill set and just tells me to go and do something with no thought, I become bitter and resentful and don't like the work that I'm doing. I'm 50 years old. I know better than that. I know that it really doesn't matter in the end. that The Lord is the one who's in charge, who's telling me to do things. And yet my own small-mindedness and my own bitterness and resentment, it makes it hard for me to do that work even though the job hasn't changed. How much more so for children who don't have that ability or for those of us that don't have the ability to reflect and to think about why am I doing this job uh, without the joy of my usual character? And so it's so important for us to uh, wait upon the Lord and to accept what He has given us with that lowliness of a child. In adolescence, we become so cautious about being embarrassed and um, being um, set aside or being teased or being cajoled or being pushed around or looking in fear to other people that we take on an attitude of cool aloofness, of indifference right to those around us and we uh, accept everything with that kind of cool indifference and when we uh, live our lives in that way then we become cool and different to everything we can't be selective and we don't have the love and the compassion that we need to really have the joy in life that the Lord is promising us he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light there is a yoke and there is a burden there is work for us to do but he promises That it will be light. It's made light through love. It's made light through joy. It's made light through playfulness and enthusiasm and the joy of children. When we approach life in that kind of love and compassion and joy, then all of the work that God has given us to do, we're able to do with joy. And it seems like a light burden for us to carry. But it becomes so difficult for us to see that, for, for us to see that love and compassion. And to not give in to that resentment and anger that we find in the passions of our body. And this is what St. Paul talks to us about in his uh, letter to the Romans chapter 7. He talks about this wanting to do the things of God and yet this law of sin that's in his body. And we want to be careful here that we don't see a kind of dualism, that we don't see uh, St. Paul saying that the mind is good and the body is bad. That is a sin that has crept up in many different religions that uh, Christians do not participate in. In fact, it's a hallmark of Christianity that we treat the body with dignity and respect. This is why Christians traditionally don't bar or disfigure the body, and we don't practice cremation traditionally. Now, cremation is allowed. I'm not saying that we can never do it. But I am saying that historically we haven't practiced it because we've practiced a dignity of the human body from birth to death. Sometimes we get very focused on the dignity of of childbirth and the dignity of a baby and the dignity of a child in the womb, which is a good and holy thing for us to reflect on. But we also need to reflect on the dignity of the aged and of those who are infirm and those who are sick and those who are dying. And even upon the body in death, we need to treat those bodies with dignity and respect because they are made by God in His image. And we give thanks to Him and we glorify Him by the way that we treat our bodies, and the way that we treat the bodies of one another. Now having said that, St. Paul is showing us the difference between having our mind set on the good things of God, and then having these urges and temptations in our body to take things for ourselves, to be greedy, to be lustful, to be arrogant, to want to take things and to to use them for our own purposes. And he says this is a struggle that he is um, undergoing and that all of us undergo. And this is a reality of the Christian life, right? Until we die, we will always be in that struggle of knowing what's right and yet having the temptation to do those things that our bodies desire. And we see that in baptism, our minds and our hearts become cleansed far easier than our bodies. Our minds and our hearts become transformed in some ways ahead of where our bodies are. And we know that our bodies will not fully be transformed until they finally get sick and corrupt and die and are resurrected by our Lord and Savior. And this is part of our hope, right? This is part of our path of transformation, that our final transformation by him will happen when these bodies decay and when we're given this new body in the resurrection of the Lord and until that time we are still um, going to be in this struggle of our minds and our hearts and the struggle of the body the struggle of of our lower nature of pride and arrogance of temptation and St. Paul is telling us that the way in which we're going to overcome this struggle and that we're going to be successful is by what we're going to set our minds upon He talks about being focused upon the law of God with our minds, the law of the Spirit and of life. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So we have a choice about what we're going to set our minds on. We have a choice about what we're going to think about. And sometimes we lose that idea, don't we? Sometimes we lose the idea and we think that our minds are working aside from us or apart from us. But we can influence our minds and we can decide what we're going to think about. And a lot of the influence that we have is made by what we listen to, by what we read, by what we watch, by the games that we play and the people that we talk to. And if we want to be focused upon the things of God, upon His righteousness, then we need to think carefully about what it is that we're setting our minds on, about what uh, things influence us in our day-to-day living. And we need to make conscious decisions about thinking upon those things that bring life and truth. Now this isn't to say that we should only read books where there's no sin and where everybody is good and everything is uh, kind of happy and sappy. That isn't what I'm saying at all, right? Because life is hard and there are challenges and struggles and there's evil in the world and we need to have stories and we need to have um, lessons about what it means to fight evil and to overcome it with good. And we need to have examples and thinking in our life about, about passion and about the struggle of life. But we need to be careful that those lessons are there about sacrificial love and the spirit of life and peace. And when we do that, when we're looking for God, we will see Him. When we're looking for Him, we will see Him. When we listen for God, we will hear Him. But we've got to look And we've got to listen. He is faithful. It is the blood of His covenant. His promise. And if we look for Him, we will find Him today and this week. He will reveal Himself to us. And He will reveal Himself when He comes again in glory. Christ has died. Christ is risen, Christ will come again.